science. From the University of Groningen, this is MindWise podcast, hosted and brought to you by psychology students. This is first year student Julian Wilming interviewing Jakob Julai. Hello, Jacob. Hello. <laughs> first of all, thanks for coming in and um, having this interview with us. Um, would you like to first tell a bit about your role at university and maybe the stuff you do, projects you're into? Uh, well, I'm an uh, assistant professor since 2008 and that means that I spend about half of my time on doing research and the other half on, on doing teaching, uh, which also includes some, some management like uh, coordinating uh, particular courses, coordinating particular years or being a member in, in, in uh, exam committees and stuff like that. Um, so, so that's roughly uh, what I do. I, I teach a couple of uh, large modules in the first year, uh, introductory psychology and, and biopsychology. Uh, I coordinate the master's track uh, together with Professor Monique Lorist of uh, Cognitive Psychology and Psychophysiology and I teach a couple of courses in that particular master's track. And I, I give uh, uh, guest lectures in, in, in several modules. Um, my research very broadly is, is about how perception relates to reality. How do we know that what we see, what we feel, what we hear, whether that is real? and uh, uh, how much of what we perceive is actually sort of a, a figment of our mind. That, that's roughly my main research interest. And uh, uh, besides that, I'm involved with, with several projects that are more related to, to doing uh, 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 practical things, applications of psychology and applications of my research. Yeah, ne next to writing and um, maybe teaching, researchers also do some uh, applied things. Can you name one of them you do? Well, we, we, we do a lot of uh, things that, that have direct applications. Um, for example, uh, one of my PhD students is working on a project where she uh, tries to develop methods to figure out whether people become fatigued at the workplace. Uh, now in the lab, we can measure that by, by applying an EEG cap, measuring brain waves, and then uh, trying to figure out whether someone is getting tired. But you can imagine that if you're working on a shipyard that you're not going to run around with an EEG cap all day. So we need to figure out other ways to, to detect whether someone is becoming tired or not. So that, that's one of these uh, uh, projects in which I, I play a role. And something completely different is, is projects I did as more a scientific consultant. Um, a couple of years ago, I, I did a uh, study in which we showed that music has a profound effect on your emotion and subsequently mm -hmm. your emotion mm -hmm. changes the way you perceive the world. So that's quite nicely tying into that perception and reality thing. I mean, if your emotion changes the way you perceive things, then mm -hmm. how can you know uh, that what is out there is, is actually what you see? So suppose if I'm happy, I see I'm, I'm far more sensitive to happy faces. Yeah. So that changes my perspective on, on, on the world around me. Um, but that research got picked up by the media a couple of years ago and, and, and sort of my name started making rounds and... <laughs> yeah. uh, all of a sudden, by about a year or two after that, that study was published, I got a call from, from Spotify or one of the uh, uh, marketing agencies that is uh, working with Spotify, yeah. asking me whether I could work with them on creating a playlist for, uh, I believe in this uh, particular uh, case, it was uh, Valentine's Day. 
And well, I, I thought, oh, okay, that, that's interesting, that's, that's fun. So I, I did a lot of literature research and I sort of came up with a suggestion for songs and I thought that was about it. But then interestingly, they kind of presented that as, oh, scientist finds the perfect love yeah. song. I mean, it's not entirely uh, an accurate description. I mean, in the end, I did sort of very thorough literature research, wrote a report on that, but um, it's, uh, it's, it's funny uh, to see how that kind of started to lead its own life. And uh, that, that kind of continued. And, and uh, last year, um, that, that must have been in, in, in July, August-ish, uh, another British company uh, approached me. Okay. Um, and they asked me that that was a uh, company uh, that's related to, to Argos, which is a, a big British uh, uh, warehouse, um, one of these department stores. Yep. And they were launching a, a new music player, so a new brand for MP3 players. <laughs> and they wanted to do something with music that puts you in a good mood. So what they had done is that they had set out a, a massive questionnaire all over Britain and Ireland, uh, asking people for their favorite songs. So had, they had over two, 3,000 respondents all listing their favorite songs, yeah. and they, they didn't have a clue what to do with that data. So apparently my name was still making rounds around these marketing <laughs> agencies. So I got this email asking, well, can you help us with analysis of the data and then sort of come up with the perfect uh, feel-good song? And the thing is, it, it's not that difficult. If you know what you have to look for and uh, what kind of elements in music make people feel good, we know that that is tempo, that that is the key of a song, uh, and that lyrics also play a role. Now, as long as you have all that data, um, you can then come up with a regression model of what would make a good song. So that means that you can make a statistical model that can predict on basis of the tempo and the key and, and, and sort of particular lyrical elements whether a song would make a good feel-good song or not. Is there any, any song where you can say, okay, this song will lift up everyone? Well, actually, yes. Um, we, we did this analysis. It turned out indeed that Queen's uh, Don't Stop Me Now was a pretty good feel-good song. And that sort of really made the rounds all over the world. I was a bit embarrassed by that actually, because it so blew up so massively. Because all in the end I did was just run a simple regression analysis and uh, um, uh, sort of write a brief report about that. But they made this press release and it was actually quite modest in its statements. But it really got picked up massively all over the world. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, so it started out with sort of one local BBC radio station. I mean, that's, that's okay. You can give, give a brief explanation. But two weeks later, I actually got interview requests from Colombia, from Italy, from Greece. And uh, the craziest thing is just last week, I got a photograph from my aunt in Italy. And uh, it turns out that they have a kind of, well, weekend millionaires or one of these, these knowledge-based yeah. quizzes where people have to answer questions about the news. And it actually turned out that, that, that the question was, according to neuroscientist Jacob Jolai, which of these songs is not a feel-good song? So I'm Italian wow. TV. <laughs> really sure, crazy. Yeah. But the fortunate thing is that we actually did manage to replicate that particular result because in January, uh, Dutch radio station asked me to, to do sort of a similar thing mm. for Blue Monday. So again, I got a whole bunch of, of, of uh, uh, polling data. So what they do for listening research is that they simply call random people and they let them hear uh, brief excerpts of songs and they ask them, do you like this song? Do you recognize this song? And the cool thing is that gives you actually far better rating of uh, uh, what people think of, think of a song. So I could actually make a better regression model, better prediction of making a feel-good song. 
And indeed, Queen ended up quite high on the top 10 list. But in that particular data set, uh, Mr. Blue Sky was actually the uh, most preferred song. Mr. Blue Sky, please tell us why you had to hide away for so long. Okay, but what if, for example, um, due to personal experience, I hate Queen and I'm more into techno or house music? Is there any way that music determines my oh, mood? In a absolutely. I mean, Music is, for a, a very uh, uh, large part, an acquired taste. I mean, there, there is no yeah. universal yeah. feel-good song. There, there is no song that I can say, hey, if I play this, you will be happy. Mm -hmm. The only thing that I can say is that I put that on the radio, is that a large portion of listeners will think, hey, this is a cool song, it puts me in a good mood. Yeah, it's and always based on averages. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and 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 that that's the thing here. We know from from musicology research, and it's already been known since the nineteen thirties, that tempo and key are the major uh, contributors to what a listener uh, uh, feels uh, about a song, whether it actually is being interpreted as a uh, uplifting or not an uplifting mm. song. So there's nothing revolutionary about this particular research. Just applying that particular uh, bit of knowledge to this uh, uh, polling data. And, and for radio stations, it's, it's actually a very uh, uh, useful thing. Polls amongst listeners, mm. they're very expensive. I mean, the, uh, the data sets that I got to work with from Radio 10, um, they, 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 they are quite uh, uh, costly. Mm. So that's also one of the reasons I could not share the data with, with, with people, because of, they were very unpleased with... Uh, uh, yeah. Actually, it was quite a struggle to, uh, to get the data in the first place. So they really wanted me to do that analysis, but they did not want to give me that data. So we and the production team had to do very, uh, we had to do quite some effort in order to convince the marketing team that we actually needed that data in order to analyze it. But um, that, that's one of the interesting things about these kinds of, of, of assignments. Yeah, I bet there are several variables. For example, if, if it's in the morning or Absolutely. whether you're in the car or listening to... Absolutely. The thing is, those are... Um, variables that, that, that are very difficult to, to measure. I mean, one of the nice things of, of this particular regression model is that we could take just, I mean, for, for the Dutch analysis, I even left out lyrics, but, but tempo and key are, are main contributors. If you build a regression okay. model with geez, just these two uh, predictors, you can actually explain uh, a significant amount of vari variability in what the average listener thinks of a song. And again, that's not something that's very new, but it's quite, Nice that it still holds now in the 2000s with uh, uh, top 40 songs. But the thing is that that sort of, this is more sidetrack. I mean, I, I really love doing music research. I mean, I, I play in the band myself. So it is a, uh, um, a kind of side interest that sort of really got surprisingly big over the past couple of months. But it's not something that I do as sort of the main portion of my scientific research. This is sort of a sidetrack consultancy thing that really sort of, blew up to massive proportions yeah. unexpectedly that's astonishing when it's get published it's just making the round and yeah well some it's, it's a bit frustrating i mean I, on, on the one hand i mean i know that there are many colleagues who publish a lot of very interesting research or even yeah. my own papers yeah. uh, that get read by a couple of hundred people and mm -hmm. that's about it and this explodes this literacy by millions and millions of people worldwide <laughs> and it's just nothing more than me running an R script on, on some polling data, yeah. which is sort of, <laughs> I, you guys could do that in your stats practicals. I mean, it's nothing uh, that uh, uh, spectacular. Next to those applied projects, you also um, are engaged in teaching. First, I got a mean question. What is your favorite taught course? 
um, if you take into account everything as students' motivation, um, the best coffee next to the lecture <laughs> hall, and yeah. No, that's not really a mean question. I mean, I, I, I teach several courses, of course, um, and I coordinate the two, which are sort of mine. It's introductory psychology and uh, applied cognitive psychology and the master uh, cognitive psychology and psychophysiology. Um, I really love biopsychology mm. because I love working with Mark Neuestein. He's a fantastic teacher and uh, it's really an inspiration to work with him. But my favorite course has to be introductory psychology. And the reason okay. for that is that it covers all of psychology and you can really sort of uh, uh, inspire people, tell about the entire yeah. width of the yeah. field. And, and uh, I, I really, really like that course. As a, yeah, regarding the introduction to psychology course, I know as a first year student, um, you want to convey kind of the message of the university that we're becoming uh, scientists and we're gonna be um, yeah, critical thinkers. And um, is there any way you can you try to convey the message from the university to the first year students? I mean, they're just come to the university, are motivated and well, it, it's an important thing. I mean, if you study psychology, for many students, the uh, motivation to go into this area is that they want to work in, in a healthcare-related topic. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, one of the odd quirks in the Dutch academic system is that we actually have two types of universities. So we got the research universities, uh, of which our university is one, uh, and we got the more applied universities. And there, there is a major difference, and that is that the role of research in research universities is far more prominent. Um, this distinction is, is, is not, for example, in the, the, the British higher education system, it's, it's not there. There you actually have to sort of look at your university and specific courses yeah. and uh, to see what the exact content is. But all universities there have a, a sort of research kind mm -hmm. of uh, uh, yeah. in there as well. Um, what I always find a bit weird and uh, is that, for example, I, I taught a, uh, a guest lecture in the second year on a sort of uh, um, career options in cognitive psychology and psychophysiology. And one of the things that struck me is that if you say that a particular master's area that involves a lot of doing research, mm -hmm. that people think that research is, is, is some kind of curse word, that it's a really dirty thing and that it's, it's awful. That's not the case. I mean, research does not mean that you have to be a researcher at a university or uh, um, that you're going to spend most of the time in the lab not doing, well, real, and I'm making quotation marks here, yes, yes. real stuff. Yeah. Um, but you can work actually on very real applied problems with, with doing research and really contribute to innovation and applying theory to practice. I mean, yeah. that is research as well. I mean, research also includes a lot of creativity, doesn't it? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. It's um, if, if well, you just asked me about my favorite course. Of course, it's I have to admit that's introductory psychology. Yeah. But one of the things I really like about my applied psychology course, um, I mean, that format is that we have one problem, uh, uh, central problem in a week. For example, lie detection or uh, detecting fatigue, and then the students in that course get the assignment. Okay. You're the expert. Next week, I want to hear a solution based on psychological research for this particular problem. Mm -hmm. And um, for lie detection, for example, of course, we have the, the normal lie detector, sort of which measures uh, stress responses, which is a brilliant example of applied psychophysiology, by the way. 
But the thing is, the lie detector, um, it detects stress. And in uh, these kinds of interrogation situations, people are stressed by default. For example, uh, if I were to ask you directly, do you have child pornography on your computer? That's going to induce stress, whether you have that on your computer or not. So if the lie detector then gives a signal, then I might actually accuse you wrongly of doing something very, very bad. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that, that, that that's researchers are trying to find a solution for. Is there a way that we can improve lie detection uh, routines? And one of my uh, student groups came up with a brilliant example, with a brilliant solution for this, which I had not thought of as well. And, and it's this, one of the things about lying is it's a cognitive task. It's something that you have to put cognitive effort in. And one of the things that we know about putting cognitive effort into a task is that it makes us worse at maintaining our gait, our, our position. Don't you think some people can lie automatically? Probably, <laughs> probably. By training, yeah. Oh yeah, well, there are of course all kinds of psychopathologies that makes it easier for you to uh, to lie and, and think about false memories yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, if you truly believe that something has happened that yeah. has not happened. Well. But anyway, these students came up with the idea, okay, we know that doing a cognitive task sort of uh, increases postural sway, so that means that people who are, for example, doing mental arithmetic have more difficulty uh, standing up straight. They, they sort of start to sway a little bit. So they came up with the idea, okay, we put these people on a uh, balance board and then we're going to put them in an interrogation and see if there's a difference in postural <laughs> sway for yeah. people who tell the truth uh, versus people who are lying. And we, of course, we did not test that yet, but that's one of these examples where I think, yes, that's really interesting. That's sort of a creative application of, of um, uh, research in one area. Take it from that domain and apply it into another area. And to me, that is what research is all about. So yeah. there is so much knowledge out there, and it, it's really interesting to see how we can apply that knowledge, not just sort of in practice, but um, also between different research fields. Brilliant, yeah. To 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 come back to the um, university, um, I reckon like most of the students who are actually um, motivated for working in healthcare late and applied settings are still really satisfied here and um, then I asked myself what does make the university here unique is there well um, wh- what do you mean with with unique I mean is it specifically Groningen or the uh... I, I mean the university and specifically Groningen mm-hmm. uh, in what way can you differ uh, Groningen from other universities in the Netherlands for example well the thing is that in Dutch universities, research-wise, in, in, in psychology, are all very good. Um, there, there simply are no bad psychology departments in the Netherlands. Okay. Uh, if you look at all areas of psychology, so ranging from clinical to social to cognitive, um, in, in, in all areas, I think that, that, that Dutch universities at least have one or two staff members who are the absolute uh, 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 um, uh, top in there or, or the absolute most famous researchers mm-hmm. in, their, in their respective areas. So um, you, you can't <laughs> go really wrong with studying psycho- psychology at the Dutch <laughs> University. From a teaching perspective, um, there, there is a very, um, there, there, there's a lot of, of uh, a crosstalk between universities. So we really uh, collaborate, we talk with other universities about the research, uh, the, the teaching programs. So that means that, in essence, uh, it does not really matter that much in terms of sure, teaching yeah. quality. Yeah. 
But of course, the vibe between different universities is, is, is of course, uh, a major thing. I mean, Groningen is a rather unique city in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. um, it has the largest student population, largest international student population. Um, the weird thing is, it's two hours away from everything else, uh, <laughs> yeah. and still everything is here. That's I mean, why you're mocked here. Uh, yes, yeah. that, that's... Um, no, but it's one of the weird things about Groningen. If you look at sort of the... Uh, uh, all the things that you can do here, the kinds of shops that you have here, it, it's easily at par with Amsterdam. And actually, I, I lived in Amsterdam for about nine years. Um, I find it easier to sort of find my way around here and I need something special. It's mm -hmm. easier to get it here than in Amsterdam. I don't have to travel uh, um, uh, from one end of the city to the other to find a specific item or whatever. Mm -hmm. Just everything I need is here. And in case you have to, you just cycle five minutes and then exactly. you're there. Yeah, yeah. And even then, if you get used to the distances, an hour and a half, and but train is not that far. Yeah. Um, so, of course, the city is one of the things that makes Groningen unique. And if you look at the program, we do have the longest running international program in the Netherlands. So that means that we have a lot of experience with teaching in English, with um, providing this kind of support for international students. Yeah. So there are other universities that have recently started with English language programs, mm -hmm. but it's more difficult than you would think to start such a program up. And that's something that we, we figured out the hard way. I mean, I have been uh, part of the English language program from the start off. Uh, and, and we really learned sort of how to set things up in English and to yeah. make sure that everything sort of is nicely synchronized with the Dutch program. Uh, Although I think that we're doing a pretty decent job here in, in offering uh, uh, a good quality education program to our uh, students. Of course, there are always things that can be improved. Um, but all in all, I, I, I really think that we're doing pretty okay. <laughs> Regarding the uh, high English level, yesterday I talked to my neighbor and she's 80 years old or 70 to 80 years old and she was fluent in English. So um, <laughs> do you think it's the Dutch uh, the Dutch society in general or is it more the Groningen society? No, it's um, if, if you talk at level of proficiency in, in, in English, uh, by far most Dutch people need to speak at least one other language in order mm -hmm. to, to, to get around. We're a very small country and... Yeah. Um, we, we, we do travel uh, a lot as, as Dutch people. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, whether English is the first language of many people, well, that, that sort of has sort of grown, uh, I think, my age, uh, people my age, and, and probably a bit older, till 45, 50 age, will probably have English as their first language. Yeah. But if you sort of go uh, beyond that, for example, my parents have German as their first, oh, okay, other, yeah. uh, their, their first foreign language, which makes sense because I sort of was born about couple of kilometers from the German uh, border mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So almost German in that respect but, <laughs> yeah. um, so that that would differ that, that your neighbor of, of 70 80 years old speaks English fluently is actually an exception from that particular okay. age okay. Uh, uh, range but by far most people uh, uh, you will meet will speak English to at least some degree and it has to do with our education system where English is a uh, 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 well you have to take at least one foreign language and since I believe about 10, 12 years, English is actually uh, compulsory. Mm -hmm. um, as, as a matter of fact, my, my, my daughter is six years old. She's now in the second grade of, of kindergarten. She already has English lessons. Oh, as well. so okay. It's really something that we take seriously. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so English as a second language is definitely something that, that most Dutch people mm -hmm. uh, will be able to uh, speak. There's one last remaining question. Um, would you pre would you like to 
briefly describe the perfect lecture? Oh, the perfect lecture, that's a difficult one. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it really depends on the audience that you've got. Yeah. Uh, I have to say, I gave a TEDx talk a couple of weeks ago for okay. uh, TEDx Groningen. And um, I have to say that that was definitely a, a, uh, a great experience. And the reason for that is it's completely different than your standard lecture. Mm -hmm. The way that I sort of... Uh, um, got invited for that. I gave a lecture for Studium Generale a couple of months ago okay. and, and one of the organizers of TEDx was there. She really liked the talk and she asked me, hey, do you want to give a TEDx talk? Now, I, I did give one of such talks for the Hangon Symposium here a couple of years ago. Uh, so basically it's no PowerPoint and just to the point message in, in, in 12 minutes. So I thought, oh, easy, did that before. So, uh, <laughs> But it actually turns out that if you do the proper TEDx event, with the American organizers, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. <laughs> it's rather a bit more difficult. So when we had sort of the uh, uh, rehearsal talks, that was about a week and a half before the actual event, uh, I, I just started preparing like, oh, easy, I can do this, but uh, not really. So I spent about uh, the, the remainder until the actual event with a speaker coach and um, with the organizers, and, and really I got a lot of tips about what do you do in such a short span? What kind of message do you convey? Yeah. And in the end, I think that is definitely one of the fav my favorite talks that I gave. It was uh, uh, short, engaging, and although you don't have interaction with the audience at the moment itself, because you simply don't have, do not have time for that, the TEDx format that they use in the economy is that, that after the talks, you can actually have interactions with the audience. So I had a lot of very interesting discussions with people afterwards. And because it's so brief, you can really get to one particular idea and you can expand on that later yeah. during the discussions yeah. and I, I think that's one of the important things that uh, that you that i learned about the these ted uh, and tedx like talks um many of my my, my colleagues are, are quite critical at the ted format because it's too short and and, and drive all nuance and and um that is not necessarily true because it's not just the talk that makes all of this TED experience. It's primarily mm. interaction afterwards in which you can order okay. sort of a far more uh, uh, nuanced and, and, and detailed discussion about what it actually is you do. So um, I, I have to say that that's definitely one of my favorites, uh, my most liked experiences in, in, in lecturing thus far. So, um, of course, you can't really do that for 350 yeah. people or 400 people if you really have to sort of talk about a particular chapter in mm -hmm. the book, mm -hmm. and, then, and then it's different. Um, but yeah, really talking about uh, uh, the kind of ideas that, that I want to put forward, and this was definitely one of my favorite okay. ones. So I can recommend everybody out there to listen to Jakob Gulen's TED Talk. <laughs> we'll be online soon. I'll yeah, <laughs> yeah that, I think that's it. Um, First of all, th thank you for being Wonderful. interviewed Wonderful. and those elaborated um, answers. Um, and yeah, bye. Okay, awesome, thanks. This podcast was a production of Mind Voice for the Department of Psychology at the University of Groningen.